thing. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, and we seek blessings upon the Prophet وسلم, and many more and many more. And continuing along our exploration of ayat in the Quran, we're also dedicating a little bit more time to this passage on the Prophet, peace be upon him, which is in Surat Al-Qalam, Surah 68, Ayah 4. And let me just pull it on the screen for all of you. 68, 4. Okay. And apologies again for those of you who were not here yesterday who tried to get to class the two days before that. Uh, Friday, I decided to cancel class because I was in transit. And Saturday, I was absolutely delirious from lack of sleep and canceled the last second, but apparently only half of you got the uh, message. Okay, and once again, let me know if you can see the Quran on the screen, please. Yes, mashallah. Okay. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan rajim wa innaka la'ala khuluqin azim. So, indeed, indeed, indeed. Indeed, indeed, indeed. You are indeed, indeed, indeed of um, some moral character, great moral character, so I would say majestic character. So, uh, the fact of these multiple emphases, so inna is Arab in Arabic, triple emphasis. La'ala is further emphasis. So, I think, you know, again, we all have our opinions about the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his character. No surprise that it's speaking with emphasis upon emphasis, almost to the point you'd make this multiplied, that his character is majestic. But think about this attribute of the Prophet's character. What would be other words other than azim that we would use to speak about the character of the Prophet, peace be upon him? What are your thoughts? And it doesn't have to be Arabic words. It can be English words. You can even go for Urdu and the other language that I know, Spanish. But um, what would be other words to speak of as adjectives for the character of the Prophet, peace be upon him? Shala. Um, Al-Amin is a name, right? So trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, at, prior to Wahi, prior to the onset of revelation in his life, he is already known as As-Sadiq Al-Amin. So the truthful and the super truth, right? The truthful and the super trustworthy, the eternally trustworthy. Integrity is a good one too. Hilm is a good one. What else do we think of when we think of the character of the prophet? Some kindness. Other thoughts that we'd use to describe his character Shala. gentleness mm-hmm. yeah generous yes just yes so if we were to compare and contrast the attributes of Allah with the attributes of the prophet peace be upon him can you 
think of any correlation. Now, obviously, the attributes of Allah, peace be, uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah most high, are in the superlative form, most in rahmah, eternal in rahmah, right? Kareem, most generously noble, Hamid, the most praised. But Hamid, Hamid, are names of Allah. Muhammad is the name of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So can you think of any type of correlation? So we have the Prophet, peace be upon him, is chosen by Allah as his beloved, as his messenger. But what about the attributes? This is a question I could not ask you all a week ago or a week and a half ago because your fasting brains would not be able to handle it. But now we're at a point where fasting is somewhat getting stabilized. But looking at some of you, maybe not, but nevertheless. Thoughts. Correlating the attributes of Allah with the attributes of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Ahant. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah, my brother in al-Islam. Yes. <laughs> um, I think in, I mean, you know, you can't like compare, of course. Obviously. But uh, in terms of in correlation, I feel like, you know, if you want to take something like, you know, the bigger in value and then, you know, package it into something that is trans, uh, you know, transmittable and, and digestible. I think like those would be the qualities of the Prophet in, okay. in terms of being the example uh, for us. So I don't know okay. if that's like an apt analogy. But. So let me know if I'm understanding correctly. You're suggesting that, yes, there can be a correlation between the attributes of Allah and the attributes of the Prophet. Where we're basically saying the attributes of how Allah interacts with creation and the attributes of the Prophet in his personality yes what you said in the like latter uh you know would be like you know more along the lines of like what i was thinking okay what about and this is for all of everybody not not just uh, uh dr ahant here what about the tough attributes so attributes of beauty probably easy to apply to the prophet you see upon him except for creator okay attributes of majesty so Al-Jabbar, the one whose will cannot be stopped. Al-Qahar, the one who subdues. Can we find these things in the attributes of the Prophet, peace be upon him? Al-Mudhil, the one who, like an Urdu, does dhalil of someone. Uh, Asim. First of all, you just said one of my mom's favorite insults. Yeah, and it's not you... an insult. It's an expression of love. Dhalil, expression of love. Shaitan ke olad, which the Arabs can still translate. Bevakuf. How do you translate bevakuf into straightforward English? Fool. Bevakuf is like, yeah, it's kind of like fool. It's like um, um, brainless in a sense, these right? Are, these are definitely, you know, um, box study bombs. But, <laughs> but, um, and, and I forgot where I was. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think in a sense, like when we talked about you, you sort of view Allah with a mixture of, of hope and fear and your relationship to Allah as a mixture of hope and fear. Um, the, the prophet's attributes are or should be aspirational. 
Okay. Like they're like, because he was human, we can fully aspire to those things. And, um, you know, on, on, on some level, like this ayat is talking about uh, good moral character, like that's a wholly achievable thing. But I think, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they correlate to each other, but I also feel like the um, Jabbar, like the one whose will cannot be stopped, you said. I mean, that there, there are definitely aspects of that in when the prophet went into battle and things mm-hmm. like that. So exactly. I think there are moments. And so I guess the answer is that the prophet espouses those attributes but not all at once whereas Allah is all of those things at once wholly and completely mm-hmm. so the last point you the very last point you made that Allah is all of those things wholly and completely that is a theological stance and the true answer to that is we don't know right uh, and and so there's a lot of wrestling academic wrestling about what are the attributes of Allah what do they mean in terms of Allah and so it could be that he's all of them, you know, uh, because if we say there, he, that he's not, then it raises the question, does Allah change and all those things. Nevertheless, if we frame the attributes of Allah as how he interacts with creation, then they can be very particular at a given time. And like your point that he went into, the prophet went into the battle, peace be upon him, when we're speaking of Allah and all of his attributes, we're speaking of all of his attributes with all of creation not just pious believers, but also people who are rejecting. And so if we look at all of the attributes of the prophet, peace upon him, with everyone, including those who follow him and those who reject him, then do things seem to parallel more? And it seems like they parallel more. If we include, how does he conduct himself with Abu Jahl, right? How does he conduct himself with Abu Lahab? And so the point I'm also drawing our attention to is when we think of the prophet, peace be upon him, all those attributes we gave, right? He's so generous, he's caring, he's, he's so full of compassion for everyone. Those are part of it. But when we're speaking about the prophet, peace be upon him, against kafirs, uh, as is the case with Allah and the prophet being the prophet of Allah, his door to courtesy and compassion is always open, but there are times where it is shut. And inshallah, never for us, but the point being that that is also part of the prophet's personality, meaning he was in battle. In Ohad, he was running faster than everyone else to the point that there was a guy who who wasn't running very fast and the prophet says, give me your shield, someone who knows how to use it. I mean, he was speaking very tough in battle as well. Thoughts? Or let's put it this way. If uh, not only is it the fact that he went into battle, the fact is also he launched raids. So he comes to, he migrates from Mecca to, to Yathrib. And among his first things that he does, we always talk about a couple of them. Changes the name of the town from Yathrib to Medina city comes from the Umul Qurra, meaning, or he comes from Al Qurra, the, the village, now he's in the city, uh, conducts the treaties with the tribes of Jews. Uh, he puts together the Mahajirs and the Ansars, the, the, the immigrants and the, the locals. Uh, 
And a point we often don't mention is that he launches raids across the Arabian Peninsula, primarily targeting the Quraysh for any of their caravans that come near Medina. If your caravan comes here, I'm taking it. And that's what prompted the Battle of Badr, that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was, was sending the people to go after the, uh, the caravan of Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan didn't want to lose his caravan, so he was going to go the long way, so it's outside of the range. And the people of Mecca are like, no, you're going to go straight through, and we're going to come with forces. So it's the raids that, that prompted what became the Battle of Badr. So thoughts about the military side of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the tough side. Dania. Uh, it sounds balanced to me. Um, I think like personally, I choose to think of different qualities because that um, directly affects me differently um, or like things that I aspire um, too, mm -hmm. but in general, as you're talking about it, I mean, um, he saw, I said, I'm um, just sounds like a, a balanced leader. Yeah, this is, this has also been, um, in modern contemporary Christianity, this has been the subject of a lot of pushback and pullback that you have that depiction of Isa where he is soft and welcoming and loving. And then you have those people who push back saying, no, that's way too soft of a version of Jesus and a version of Christianity. And that you can even almost see a difference on political lines. Absolutely. Uh, Ahant, you would raise your hand and then Asim. Um, no, I mean, I, I lowered it because I feel like, um, you know, uh, Islam is not a passive, you know, religion. There's, uh, there's balance in, in, in what is being you know put forth so you know those are the only thoughts i had on yep. all that and shell makes the point the tough side gets a lot of attention for the non-muslims wanted to face up yeah absolutely awesome so this is like semi-related but what we're talking about is also like tangentially related to how at least what you described to me is like sort of the islamic ethos behind raising a child that the first seven years of their life you your primary relationship is your is you play with them the next seven years your primary relationship is you teach them discipline mm -hmm. and so i think <clears throat> i think this idea of balance actually sort of weaves itself into uh the fabric of how we're supposed to practice our faith anyway mm -hmm. so i'm i'm not you know i i feel like i should be struggling with this this question a little bit and i'm not sure why yeah, you've lost me with this last point. Explain this last point. As in, as in, I think that we inherently see these sort of um, uh, displays of, of might or aggression or whatever you want to call it as uh, negative, but I don't think they have to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, that might be the point you're trying to make, but I feel, <laughs> I feel like that's not, that it shouldn't be that heavy of a struggle to say, yeah, this is, completely true and yet also as you know even even with the Quraysh as they um sort of 
you know, as different members of the Quraysh accepted Islam and stuff, the, the prophet completely changed his behavior with them because it, there, there are certain ways that you, you know, you, you can still be respectful of your enemies without inviting them to your house for, for dinner. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, on that note, uh, the, one of the ayahs that's often quoted by Islamophobes, um, is the set of eyes that the Prophet peace be upon him received upon the conquest of Makkah. And these are the eyes near the beginning of Surah At-Tawbah, where the leaders of the Kafirs are given four months of amnesty. Like we often make the point when the Prophet entered into Makkah, he gave general amnesty, which he did. But in the leader's case, it was four months. After four months, either you become Muslim or you leave. And then there's a third option, which you can probably intuitively figure out, right? And so that is also as much a part of the prophet Sirah, peace be upon him, as the compassion that he gave to the little boy and his bird, right? As is, you know, all the other compassionate things. In our suburban American Islam, uh, especially post 9-11, um, the focus has been all the kind, gentle aspects. Part of that, of course, is a response to 9-11. Part of that is also because in the decade before, everybody went to focus on the tough aspects and such. And so this is a pushback in multiple ways. But the point I want for our consideration is when we're speaking of the character of the prophet, peace be upon him, on the one hand, we have absolute honesty, okay? which is sometimes, however, shared in, in politeness and such. Um, keeping his commitments, all of those things, but then also it's a realist character in the same way that war is a despised part of reality of life. It is a part of life. Okay. And, and so a lot of our suburban uh, approach to Islam is to try to pretend those things don't exist. And they are very much a part of the deep. Any other thoughts, questions? Shella. So is there anything to suggest that they are, that they have to be a part of the deen in like suburban Islam or modern Islam now? Like, I mean, I think that we can look at these things historically and see that they played a role, but, you know, a lot of the fanatics might, you know, say like, okay, that is Islam, right? And I'm going to continue that into the present day. Like, I kind of see that as the historical part of Islam. So the question would become, how do we determine what is historical and what is, you know, what is currently relevant? So one way to make it apply to everything is that everything has its context, right? And so, for example, what is the default disposition we should have for people? Give them 70 excuses, right? Uh, not just believers, but give 70 excuses for people for, you know, why they're conducting themselves the way they are. You know, maybe this person's having a bad day. Maybe the person has been taught this way, so forth and so on. Not so much with political leaders, with people in power. Then it's almost like you give them 70 skepticisms. And the point I'm making is that two different people, you know, so let's say you have, uh, who's the current president? Biden. You have Biden, your next door neighbor, 70 excuses. Biden, President of the United States, 70 skepticisms. So, 
and then apply that for everything because the risk we take uh, if we don't come up with like an actual methodology for determination is in the same way one population will say that the people of war are a bunch of fanatics the people of war will look at the people who are saying those people who are just preaching peace are lying right and both of them might have equal valid arguments it's just that there's less people dying in, the, in one scenario okay which is not a significant thing that's a huge thing you see the point that i'm making that if i'm saying those things are part of the historical prophet peace be upon him that's that it would be not a new claim but i'd be able to i'd have to argue it with integrity and and so there are those who argue and and um and I mean, it's good to see Dr. Mahan. Hey, Dr. Mahan, you want to give uh, Dr. Asfar's argument for why nonviolence is the approach of the era? He's like, I just joined close. You know, I, I remember him saying that he pretty much, uh, he said that you need to use um, the means that are conventional in your age. So what makes more sense to bring about um, real transformation today. Uh, he followed King and Gandhi, he used to, you know, cite them. And one of the things that he said has changed is in those days, you were pretty much going up against similar capabilities. So yeah, maybe one side had more or less camels, but you still had camels and you still had horses and you still had swords. But now you've got extremely sophisticated military um, arsenal on the one side and like a, a, a public kind of protesting on the other side and so there's just no symmetry and so his philosophy you know adjusted based on that and said you have to kind of win over the people your adversaries and so non-violent resistance is the best way to do that so so the point that i'm bringing this up like shallow to your question would be that would be one way it gets addressed right um, what are the aims of, of battle and uh, how would that be applied today? And so the argument that one of our mutual teachers is mentioning is that back then you had swords and spears against swords and spears. Now you'll have people on the street versus people with F-15 fighters and tanks and all that stuff. An example of that is just think of Palestine, right? Uh, think about how much people are flipping out over BDS, which is 100% nonviolent, right? as though they're saying nothing you can possibly do is gonna be acceptable. And so it would be something, the key point I'm making is for all of these um, matters, you're looking at, okay, what is the most appropriate thing in the particular context that you're in? Make sense? Awesome. Um, I have a question about the 70 excuses for a neighbor versus 70 skepticisms for a person in power. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> If that's the same person, are you then offering them 70 excuses in terms of their personal interaction with you versus 70 skepticisms for the things they do that impact people on a large scale? Yeah, effectively. I mean, I don't know how often we'll have the case where you'll have the same person, you know. Uh, I mean, chances are if you're Joe Biden's next door neighbor, you're probably also a politician. Sure, but also like our you know, our Congress people and stuff like that are, are generally speaking members of our community, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So like if they're like mowing the lawn next to you and they happen to go into your ground, then 70 excuses. 
Right, right. So it's about the the level of interaction they're having with you versus your community. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. I haven't thought about the question that way, but yes, inshallah. Stephanie. I've heard the 70 excuses for your brother, but this is the first time I've heard of the 70 skepticisms for a leader. Does that apply then to religious leaders or only mm. leaders of state? Uh, it's I, I'm skeptical about this saying about 70 skepticisms for leaders. I don't know that it would. Uh, so I don't believe it's a hadith. I think it's, uh, and this is another one of those things that I've stolen. I don't remember where I've stolen it from. But I, uh, I doubt we would apply it. I mean, I would probably apply it to a religious leader, but I don't think that it's... Uh, a good practice for people to apply to their religious leaders. You can have 70 questions, you know, if they're making a claim, like, where am I getting this from? So. All right. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Okay. Uh, I, one, one, one yeah. comment here. So uh, often, like these uh, character of Rasulullah in modern day time, things has not been changed. The one of the argument that comes is the fallacy of presentism. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate that a little bit? Well, I mean, like, the idea is basically, if I understand it correctly, is we look at our particular context as correct and civilized. And then, and then we impose that upon the past. And so we look at the past through the lens of the present. And you're always going to have bias, but that's a particular type of bias. And, and so in the case of the prophet, peace be upon him, when I'm teaching the Sira to a non-Muslim class and everybody's age 60 or older, they love the prophet in Makkah, but they wrestle and struggle with the prophet in Medina. Because the sentiment in our society is that if you are of religion, then you should be peaceful and nonviolent and all those things. And then, you know, who's the name that people will always bring up? Who are the names people always bring up in terms of nonviolent people of religion? Who are some recent examples? Bodami. Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa. Dalai okay. Lama, his, his language to his own people tends to be a lot more militant than it is, you know, in terms of his, his public language. But Mother Teresa is often looked at as the standard of, of religion, religiosity, and such. And that is a non-political, non-violent uh, view. And so the, the point I'm trying to draw our attention to is that our dean, and in particular the prophet peace upon him, it's every part of life. And that includes, I mean, is it fair to say that if anybody could have avoided war, he would have, perhaps, you know, um, or perhaps not, perhaps uh, he had to go to war as a lesson on how to do it. Asim is saying uh, MLK is nonviolent as a media construct is a media construction. I'd say the pre uh, uh, critique of of uh, the Vietnam War is definitely, you know, the the kinder, gentler king that everyone promotes and such. Um, whereas the really tough one is a little bit different. But still, it was still. I think the nonviolence was still there, except that he would speak of rioting as being a natural consequence. Of oppression and such like you gotta deal with it you know so. uh ahant. do you think then on the, the other hand the portrayal of 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 malcolm was the other extreme 
Yeah, totally. Where, you know, um, you know, because like often people misunderstand, you know, Malcolm and the public sphere mm-hmm. of who he actually was. Yeah, I would say absolutely. But even then, uh, Malcolm did not raise arms. I mean, there's photos of him holding a gun and all that stuff. Uh, but we're saying the prophet raised arms. You know. And again, we could say, well, that's the year 600 and such. But the fact of the matter is that he raised arms. I mean, obviously, I'm not here calling everyone. Let's all go join some random country overseas. You know, like, I'm not doing that. But the point is just to... Remember, this is part of the biography of the Prophet of Yusupanam. Uh, Asim, were you raising your hand again? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I used to really struggle with the, the Prophet uh, going to war and such. And the answer I always got from, you know, people of my dad's generation, including my dad, was, well, we he was... Dad, yeah. No, no, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a negative comment, I promise. Yeah. But was that he, he was uh, waging a just war. And I I never really understood, I still don't really understand, like, how are we to make the determination of what is and is not a just war? Mm -hmm. And so, so I think, I think to an extent, you can always justify defending your home, right? I I wouldn't say that the Ukrainians are engaging in unjust warfare from Mm -hmm. their perspective. Mm -hmm. But like, obviously, we, we now live in a time where the prophet is not with us. Uh, at least not in a physical sense, right? And so how do we determine what war is just and how we support, like, and, and so in a sense, like, where do we put our support both, you know, with whatever political power we have and financial power we have? Yeah. So, so the closest thing I can give you to a short answer would be the purposes for entering into armed conflict, like the purposes for engaging in the first place, and then secondarily, the means that are used within the conflict itself, right? And so the purposes for engaging, we seem to find a number of them. One is economic exploitation seems to be one, right? Uh, another would be the obvious ones, like, you know, people are trying to take your home uh, forcibly. Um, um, and beyond that, I'm forgetting some of the other ones. And then, then the means that are allowed, for example, one of the big debates is over, can you have nuclear bombs because you can't use fire as a technique? And, and then then by extension um, who is to be kept left out you know non-combatants trees elderly things like that but then uh, what if you have the case of human shields right so everything gets complicated and such and a lot of that is beyond anything that I've studied but the key points seem to be what are the terms for entry and then what are the terms within which I guess by entry, you're also, we're also including whether terms for exit as well. But the point seems to be that once you're in, you have to go all the way. But yeah, uh, for me in my suburban life, most of that becomes just theory. You know? But again, I want to draw our attention to it as something that may not have relevance in my lifetime, uh, but it is still part of the prophet, peace be upon him. So. All righty. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Do you want to start looking? Yes, uh, at the next Ahant. Um, no, no. Uh, let's please start um, uh, next because I was going to bring up the whole wide, expansive in conversation about you know American foreign policy and how they dealt with you know Muslim lands and how they justified just war and all that. But 
I, and that's another conversation. So okay, Chella, yeah, this is probably more beyond what I can, I'm capable of addressing anyway. Of course. All right, I'm going to introduce our next Aya. We are getting into our next unit. First unit was about Allah, second unit about the Prophet, third unit, the Ummah. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so I will introduce the Aya. We'll get into the discussion on it, maybe briefly today, but more in thorough detail tomorrow, inshallah. It's an Aya that I showed on purpose before. This is the middle ayah of Surah Al-Baqarah. Okay. In this way, we made you ummatan wasatan. We made you, here it says a community of the middle, or it might be translated as moderate, or it might be translated as just. Okay. Let's see what else we have here, moderate or just. Okay. So that you are witnesses over humanity. And the messenger is over you a witness. So now we're getting into the ummah itself. And a point I'd like you to consider even before getting into the details here. Well, one, I just read through the whole translation because some of you are clearly reading. So in the same way we made you a moderate uh, ummah that, so that you should be witnesses over the people and the messenger a witness over you. And we did not prescribe a qibla because this whole section of al-Baqarah is about the direction of prayer, which you used to observe except to know the one who follows the messenger as distinct from the one who turns on his heels. It was burdensome indeed, but not on those whom Allah guided. Allah will not show, allow your faith to go to waste. Certainly Allah is very kind, very merciful to people. So again, what is the context here? In the surah, is this is the switching of the Qibla from Jerusalem to Mecca. But this first half is giving us a collective responsibility in relationship to the Prophet and his responsibility, peace be upon him. But as a preliminary discussion, I'd like you to consider a few things. Uh, it's on the discussion of the Ummah that I often lose a lot of students. Uh, because a lot of students see themselves as victims of the ummah. And a point I'd like for you to consider is not only is the ummah what you think of it, but the ummah is you. Now, what do I mean by the ummah is what you think of it? If we speak of the ummah in Chicago, for example, we have whoever knows how many hundreds of thousands of, of Muslims, whatever Adjective adjectives I use to describe the ummah is probably going to be correct. I mean, assuming it's a human adjective, if I call them all jinns, it's not going to be accurate. But I'm saying if I speak of the ummah as a bunch of corrupt people, there's more than enough examples of that. If I speak of the ummah as upright, compassionate people, more than enough examples of that. And thus, in the case of projection, what I see as the ummah is more a reflection of myself than the ummah itself. And this we can even connect with hadith, connect with hadith that mirror, Muslims are mirrors to each other, believers are mirrors to each other. So what you see, and then Rumi takes this, what you see as a flaw in someone else is actually a flaw within yourself. But this point I'd like you to consider, the first point, is how you regard the ummah is more a statement about yourself than a statement about the ummah. It's a, an incomplete statement or assessment of the Ummah. Okay. And then, so to your question, Ahans, how should we view the Ummah? You have to view the Ummah as an extension of yourself. Okay. Which means 
that abandoning the ummah is akin to abandoning the self. Giving effort and care for the ummah is akin to giving effort and care for the self. Of course, you're going to have context where you don't have any bandwidth and all those things, or you might have to be going through your own healing and such. But that's the point I'd like you to consider as we enter this next unit. So really answering these, these last questions. Uh, Alex is saying, what is the third part called again? Alex, if you can remind us of, of what we were speaking about then, because I don't remember. And then Asim, I have a question about this passage. If the direction of Salat was for Jerusalem, does that mean there are people praying with their back to the Kaaba before this? They're praying. Uh, so here's Makkah, and here's Medina, and here's Jerusalem. So it was not that they were backwards towards Makkah, right? When the prophet was in, oh, no, they were facing with their backs towards Makkah. It's almost like he made sort of a straight line. Because the prophet, when he was praying in Makkah, he was praying facing the north wall. So then he could get, or the south wall facing north, so that he could get Jerusalem and the Kaaba in the same line. But when he's facing Medina, uh, actually, we can just look at a map to figure that one out. But yeah, they were but turned I, away. And, and I mean more like, you know, the, the sort of image we have of people all around the Kaaba. The way I'm picturing it is they're all around the Kaaba, but they're facing a single direction that is not the Kaaba. All right. Let As me in people it. literally standing, the Kaaba's, you know, 30 feet that way and they're standing with their back to it while they Yeah. Um, I think we can resolve that just by looking at a map. You know, a, well, a since it's 360, there it has to be somewhere, right? <laughs> but if they're in Medina, I'm saying. Oh, yeah. If they're this in is, Medina. This is not when they're in Mecca. This is when they're in Medina. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're not in Mecca ever facing away from the Kaaba. Yeah. Right, okay. Those who feel abandoned by the Ummah, I would raise the exact same question, right? Or the exact same point. Is it my personal assessment uh, or has the entire Ummah abandoned me? And this is a very valid point, especially for converts. Uh, but we will continue, inshallah. Uh, Fadlallah. Sorry to um, not let you end, but my, my, quick, my quick thing, since we're going to be thinking about this for into tomorrow, is the idea of what, the, what you see in the community is more a reflection on yourself. Yeah. Um, is, that, is, that kind of, is that what you mean actually by it? Like what you notice in the community is maybe the flaws within yourself versus yes. if someone can just as an objective observer be like, that was corrupt. That doesn't necessarily mean that within you there is that corruption. If, you we're know speaking, I mean? if we're speaking of specific moments, that's one thing. If I'm okay. asking for a general assessment of the community, it doesn't mean that if I see the community as corrupt people, that my heart is corrupt. Mm -hmm. But that is the part within myself that I'm projecting onto the community. I see. As, as a general assessment. Okay. Not in the sense of, you know, what is the community doing for Ramadan and, and all that stuff? Um, because now we're getting into very particular moments. I'm saying as a general uh, assessment of the character and personality of the community. Okay, okay. I'll mull it over. Reflect on Thank it. You. Reflect on it. Yeah. That's why I had to make it as a point for people to reflect upon as we get into this next unit. All righty. No other questions, thoughts, reflections? Then we will stop here, inshallah. 
And I think we're still good for all the classes in theory for the rest of Ramadan because thankfully nobody invites me to give speeches anymore except for these two I had earlier this month. Right, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude are to you. Nashhadu Allah ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness, wa natubu ilayk, and we turn to you. All right, may Allah tell everybody you all, inshallah. Good discussion yet again, and we will see you inshallah tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.